You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. episode 109. Now, just a quick reminder for those of you who are journal people, but honestly, for those of you who are totally not journal people, but really interested in learning a little bit more about how we can understand your eating disorder, your relationship with food on a much deeper level, which is exactly what we do on this podcast, wanted to start applying it to your life and really getting into the nitty gritties of you, your personal story then either head on over to the website, to my website, or scroll down in the show notes. There's a link to a freebie of some journal prompts and an entire activity sheet situation thing attached to it that lets you know if you're not really a journal free form person that you can get tons of instruction that way. But it's a really, really great resource if you want to start learning a little bit more about your personal life and use journaling to do so, which I love journaling. Journaling is amazing. Uh, for more for another time. Anyways, today's episode is with Devorah Levinson. And for those of you who are part of our teeny tiny little bubble of working within the Orthodox Jewish community and within the eating disorder community, you already know who this person is. But if you're not part of our teeny tiny bubble, Devorah is a referral specialist and the director of eating disorders division at Relief Resources, which is basically a mental health referral service that caters to the needs of the Orthodox Jewish community. Her role is basically to provide referrals and information to families, patients, prospective patients, and really help facilitate treatment for many, many people struggling with eating disorders. So she obviously has to connect with tons of different clinicians and see who treats what, which facilities do what, what treatment options are good for who. And it's really, really complicated because she meets with tons of people all the time and every person needs something else. So she's the person who has put in all the research to really understand what's best for each person. And then alongside that does so much training for those of you who have either little or no experience with the Orthodox Jewish world, because it is a teeny tiny bubble and very, very different. And so presenting information so that you guys can learn how to treat somebody who does identify as being part of the Orthodox Jewish community and really support them in a way that aligns with their Jewish values. She's presented like everywhere, lots of professional organizations at the AED's international conference that is up for debate. Who here says ICID like me? It's spelled ICED. I don't know. We're just going to call it the international conference at AED and does a lot of prevention work within the Orthodox Jewish community. So today's topic is basically a synopsis of the training that she gives about Orthodox Jewish culture and how it impacts people who are struggling with eating disorders. So obviously there's a massive one about kosher and how does that look? What does that mean? How do you deal with somebody who does keep kosher? And obviously there are different levels of keeping kosher, but she really does a great job at 
outlining what certain things are within the culture and how you can work with somebody who's sitting in front of you. That's not an idea. They're an actual person with a life, with a culture, with their family. And so it's really sticky. So let's just jump right in. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about this. It's been a little bit of a long time coming. And I think it's really, really important to talk about how eating disorders impact people part of the Orthodox Jewish community. Just like full transparency, we're both Orthodox Jewish. So <laughs> context, guys. And to talk about how eating disorders might impact people who are Orthodox a little differently, what you can do about it. Um, but, you know, just certain things that you might not necessarily know. So maybe start off with what are some major differences that you see with people who are struggling with eating disorders and also part of the Orthodox Jewish community, as opposed to, say, somebody who might not be part of the Orthodox community? I think what I would say is that as a more insular community, I think we feel automatically we have certain protections, if you will, right? You're going to be more careful about the influences in your home. You're going to be more careful about social media. Perhaps you're going to be more careful about newspapers, books, you know, things like that, because we want something that represents our values and we want something that, you know, we feel most comfortable with. So I think people did feel that we have these kind of automatic protections in some ways that is a little bit of a wake-up call for people to realize in specific what I'm referring to is really the thin ideal. And that, you know, I mean, the example that I always bring mm -hmm. is, um, you know, the Fiji study. There was a study in Fiji, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, share just, just in case people aren't familiar. Right. So uh, I forgot the year that this was, but um, they managed to do this unbelievable study before television was brought to you can imagine the a Fiji. time like that <laughs> in the dark ages. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. 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 And they were able to see that there were, you know, very, very little, if any at all, eating disorder, you know, recorded cases of eating disorders. Then um, American television was brought there. And then I think it was less than a year later, the numbers just rose like exponentially of eating disorders because the theory behind it was they were seeing these um, the appearance ideal. They were seeing these models, these movie stars that look differently than them. And they started to do unhealthy things to manipulate their bodies. So I kind of look at the Orthodox community in a way as mm -hmm. similar yeah. to Fiji, at least how we used to be, right? When I was yeah. a kid growing up, <laughs> you were Orthodox if you didn't have a TV. Like the really right-wing Orthodox ones were like, do you have a TV or you don't have a TV? You know, so I think we thought that we had this protection. We have no TV. We have, we're not seeing those images. We're not exposed to those different messages. But I think what's now really, really changed, which I think is cultural with the internet, that these messages of the appearance ideal are all over. Mm -hmm. And it almost feels like it's become Jewish. Like it's almost feels like it's become part of our culture to want to be skinny. But really, you know, I think, so I think that's a kind of a learning curve that I think in many ways, we just really weren't aware and weren't able to see it because we thought, well, I'm only bringing in Orthodox Jewish magazines to my house and I'm only looking on the internet to do shopping and I'm only this and I'm only this. So my family is going to be protected. So I think that is one cultural piece mm -hmm. that they just, people really weren't aware of and that it just felt so normal to open up a magazine and to see advertisements for dietitians all over. You know, and that's, you know, I always say there's there's nothing Jewish about being skinny like that's not that's not a <laughs> Jewish concept. So I think culturally, I think that was one big thing. I think, again, that feeling of protection and that insularity. The other thing is, is just that 
fear of exposure to outside influences, to outside clinicians. So I think, you know, whenever you need specialized training, you're going to have to look further afield, right? You're not going to find a cardiologist who lives next, you know, the top cardiologist who lives next door to you, right? They're going to be further away. They're going to be more specialized hospitals. So the same thing when you have, when you need treatment for an eating disorder, you're going to have to go outside of your community. So that was also a hesitation. If in general, we like to keep things in house, if you will, right? Now Mm -hmm. I've got a mental health issue, which is even more overwhelming. And I've got to go to someone who's outside the community, which is then further overwhelming. That I think was another cultural piece, that fear of really, you know, sending kids away. And I talk more about kids because that's really where the onset of the eating disorders happens most frequently. Yeah. So I think that's another big cultural concern. I mean, when I give these talks to clinicians, I have a slide that says, you know, the biggest hurdle that I feel like secular clinicians, you know, need to to jump over to really help the Orthodox families is to convince the parents, I'm not here to make your kid no longer be religious. Like, I think that's the fear that parents Mm -hmm. have. If I send them away to treatment, they're no longer going to be religious. So I think that's like a really big cultural piece that they have that, that fear. And I have had facilities tell me that by the time the Orthodox patients come, they're sicker. Than, yes. than the secular patient. So I think those are some of the big, you know, the big, like more, maybe the more philosophically cultural issues. But mm-hmm. then of course there's the the bread and butter of, you know, the issues of kosher food, Sabbath observance, things like that can make it a little bit trickier. So I'd say those are pretty much the, the cultural issues that I think um, come up the most or yeah. more forefront of my mind. Yeah, just to underscore the the last point that you said in terms of the more theoretical, I, I forget the word used exactly, but the Orthodox patients are coming in sicker. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has to do with the idea of what an eating disorder is. And this is not to anyone's fault, but just the conceptualization of an eating disorder is somebody who is much more physically impacted medically compromised, if you will, which is the sickest of the sick. And this person needs an intensive higher level of care um, inpatient, you know, the most specialized eating disorder hospital, whereas the continuum of eating disorders is far greater than just the sickest of the sick. And so it's, it's also expanding the understanding of what an eating disorder actually is to, to something that might not be visibly visible to the naked eye. Right. No, a hundred percent. I mean, I always, I always say thank God for periods because if girls didn't lose them and they don't always, but if girls didn't lose them in the course of their eating disorder, I think I would probably get less than half the calls that I do. Really? Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Because, you know, we're talking about large, busy families, right? Large, Mm -hmm. busy families with lots of stuff going on. And they're not going to see these nuanced concerns about body image, or or they're not going to see them as quickly. You Mm -hmm. know, these concerns about body image, these odd eating behaviors, a little bit of excessive exercise, I don't think they're going to pick up on a lot of these other things. But if a girl says, mom, I don't have my period, Mm -hmm. that is going to, like, I I remember once, I mean, this is years ago, so I I really hope that things have improved. But I remember once having a dad call up, his daughter was 18, she hadn't had a period in three years. Three years. So I had a period in three years and, and I said, okay, great. You know, I'm so happy you're calling now. We definitely want to. And of course she had all the eating disorder symptoms, you know, she had all the eating disorder symptoms. So it wasn't just that there was, you know, something hormonal going on. So I said, you know, I'm so happy you're calling. I definitely want to connect you with the right treatment, but you know, what made you decide to call now? Like, it sounds like you've had, you know, this has been going on for, oh, what made you decide to call? I said, well, you know, she's going to start dating soon. And I know she can't get married without a period. <laughs> so, you know, which again, he's just 
well-meaning, but ill-informed, you know? Yeah. So I definitely think that, which again, really, if we look at it, it's all connected, right? You know, Mm -hmm. Judaism is all about handing it over to the next generation, the tradition, handing it over to the next generation, that continuation of family, right? That is what's so important to us. So again, that's why if someone is concerned their child isn't going to be religious anymore, that's going to be very painful to them. That's going to be very worrisome. Someone is concerned that their child's not going to be able to be a wife, to be a mother. That's concerning to them. That's very worrisome. So yes, there is a whole continuum of care and of challenges with eating disorders. And it's not necessarily just that we're talking about the sickest of the sick, but I think that oftentimes they don't realize it until we get to that to some level. Like, you know, I I rarely Mm -hmm. get a, or I don't say rarely, the calls I get are much more when it's already impacting them pretty seriously medically. Yeah. And I also do think that it's connected to the first thing that you were talking about, about how it's become pervasive among the culture to have this appearance ideal, because something that might seem kind of questionable to either one of us would be totally normal within the context of a family or a community. And so it only becomes jarring when it's pretty obvious that it's an issue. Right, right. No, no, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I, if you think about it after the war, right, after World War II, everyone wanted like, you know, the system of dating, I always say, has always been the same. Everybody wants the pretty girl. That's the bottom line. Yeah. You know, we want the pretty girl. <laughs> it's our vision of pretty that's changed. Yes. And after the war, you know, what was that vision? It was, you know, my father used to call it zoftic, like the woman with like a little chubby cheeks, you know, who was a little more buxom, <laughs> you know, because that that showed health. This was after the yeah. war. Right. So mm-hmm. that showed health. That showed vitality. That showed fertility. Mm-hmm. Right. And then if you look at it in secular society, right, it used to be Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. And then it went down to Twiggy, right? It went down to these. So in secular society, that vision of beauty, it just thinned down. It thinned down and it changed. And you see that same pattern in our life, you know, and that people wanting to be that size zero, but just being not aware, wait a minute, where is that coming from? Where's that, where's that message really coming from? Right. But I think that's also what makes this so complicated is that especially when we're dealing with somebody with an eating disorder, part of the recovery process is sure, you know, let's get them to eat a little bit more regular, a lot of it regularly. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of it, where it kind of started this mentality of you should look a certain way. And, and especially with dating and, and girls dating so young, that part's not changing. I mean, we're trying, we're doing our best right. and making like small steps, right, right. but that part's not changing. And that's right. what makes this so complicated. Right. Well, for sure. I mean, you always feel like, you know, if everybody's drinking the Kool-Aid and I don't drink the Kool-Aid, what's going to what's going to happen? Right. You know, really, what's what's going to happen? What I try and explain to parents is we just have to do our part one step at a time, mm-hmm. you know, to try and to try and, and change that. But it's definitely I mean, I've, I've had that too often where, you know, the parents will be like, OK, I understand she was sick and I understand this was a problem, but I still don't want her to be fat. Right. Yes. You know, so it's definitely that again, that sin ideal internalization is something that we struggle with all the time and it is pervasive in it, but it is something that we've got to work at. Absolutely. Like there's nothing we can't, we can't just give yeah. in. We can't just give in. So we've, we've got to, we've got to work at it. And there are a lot of great people out there that mm-hmm. are, you know, there are a lot of now, you know, um, orthodox dietitians that are, you know, real proponents of health at every size. There's a lot of, there's definitely some good articles going on out there. There are people doing some good work as far as awareness and prevention, but it's, it can feel like, like an uphill battle sometimes. Yeah. Which I'm sure almost everybody can relate to. So, right. Right. Well, let's get into the nitty gritties just for a few minutes. Okay. In terms of kosher, 
first of all, not yes. you're not a rabbi and you're not pretending to be one. Yes. What what are just the overviews of kosher? And I guess specifically with that is what, what is it not? Right. Let me give you my disclaimer just because I love saying it and I say it so often. So so I'm not, I explained to everyone, I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor because my job is not to fix their problem. It's to send you send them to the right people who can. And what I've added over time is I'm not a rabbi and I'm not God. Oh, you have to add um, the God well. part. <laughs> so, yes, I've added the God part. Um, so I'm very mindful of what I can say and what I can't mm -hmm. say to people, which has been a really my saving grace and helps me come back every day and, and do my job. So as far as kosher food, okay, so there's nothing spiritual about it. It is ethical and religious in nature. And the kosher food is are the laws that were brought down. You know, there are three main things that you need to follow to be a card-carrying member of the Orthodox Jewish community is how I explain it, right? Because I feel like that's what confuses people the most. They'll be like, wait a minute, you're Orthodox, but you look like that. And then this person is Orthodox, but look how mm -hmm. they look. And now I'm like really confused, yeah. you know? So what it really boils down to is there's three main things that someone needs to follow um, in order to be, you know, a member of, of the team, if you will. And that's um, the laws of the Sabbath, of keeping Shabbos, um, which I don't know if we're going to have any time for today, but just in general, laws of Shabbos, um, laws of kosher, which are those dietary laws, and then the laws of family purity, which are between a husband and a, and a wife in regards to the wife's menstrual cycle and their intimate relations. So kosher is a big one. Kosher is really a big one. So as far as kosher, like I said, it's completely religious in nature. It's brought down in the Torah, in our Bible. And basically it gives us rules to what we can and cannot eat. And it has nothing to do with a rabbi blessing it. It's the origin of the foods and how the foods are prepared. So when it comes to meat, the animals have to have um, split hooves and chew their cud, which a lot of people then, you know, we, we do this little trivia um, who can tell me what, you know, does a pig have split hooves and chew its cud? And that's where many people learn, hey, wait a minute. No, it has split hooves, but it doesn't mm -hmm. chew its cud. So now you know why Orthodox Jews don't eat pork. So the animal has to have split hooves and chew its cud. Birds cannot be birds of prey, okay? Because again, in many ways, you are what you eat. So um, we avoid birds of prey. And um, fish have to have um, fins and scales. So again, we'll do our little trivia um, shellfish, clams, oysters, um, shrimp, lobster, none of that has fins and scales. So that's why we don't eat that. Um, now, in addition, when it comes to the meat, those things have to be prepared specifically. It really is the most humane way, the way the animal is, how do you even say it in English? How do you say shecht in English? The way, it's slaughter, thank word. you. <laughs> I know, shecht. Slaughtered they both and are terrible. Are both I guess pretty, it's not a pretty, yeah, they're both pretty, pretty idea. Shecht sounds like you got a little extra phlegm going on there, and <laughs> slaughter just sounds like you know a bad, a bad, a bad horror movie. Yes. Um, so, so it is the most humane way. Um, there's laws about how sharp the knife has to be. You know the way the animal again he is slaughtered. It goes according to the. It goes across the jugular. It's very. It has to be very fast. It is the most painless way. And this has to be supervised, has to be done by rabbis, and has to be supervised the entire time from start to, you know, to when the, the meat is sold. The source of the products are very specific. The way animal products are prepared, they have to be slaughtered a special way. And then the way processed foods are prepared has to be a special way. Also, in that, you know, if you give me a cake that you made and you say it's all kosher, I need to know that somebody watched from when it was prepared to when it was packaged, to when it was sold. So, you know, if anybody wants to go on a, on a scavenger hunt, 
you know, I have a list of the different symbols that you'll find on foods that show that it's kosher because different areas will have their different kosher organizations that their job is to supervise the production. So you'll see like, you know, I think Texas is my favorite. It's like literally the, the symbol is a, is a state of Texas with like a K in it or something. <laughs> so you can go into the grocery store, wherever you may be, and walk around and see what items can you find that have this kosher symbol, which shows that all the ingredients are kosher and it was supervised throughout all stages of production. So that's kind of a little bit of basics about kosher but there's a lot more pieces to it, which really depend on, you know, where the person is, what level of care they might be in and what else is, is going on. But that's, that's kosher in a, in a 22 second nutshell. That's great. And also milk and meat together is. Oh yes. Thank you. See, I forgot that one even. Right. So milk and meat. So I love that one also because that the basis of that is that you do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Right. Which if you think about it is very, very ethical. But yeah, no milk and meat together. So we do wait after as well. If I have a hamburger, I'm going to wait six hours until I have my chocolate bar so that it has time to digest and so that it's, you know, there's no real connection between those two. So yes, thank you for adding that one as well. Yeah. So, I mean, and that one also gets tricky with meal plans and things like that. Well, so you know what? Oh, for sure. Let's let's talk about that because there's obviously a, a bunch of intricacies with kosher and also depending on someone's level of observance will have variations of mm-hmm. how they keep kosher. But how has this impacted, and this is probably not an exhaustive list, how does it impact people in recovery? And maybe we can start with higher level of care because they're not having anything to do with their food preparation. Right. I really, cause I, I really feel it probably only impacts in higher level of care because when you're at home and you're in outpatient care, you have your own food. You've got everything. I mean, you can get everything kosher. I mean, I've been to restaurants that, you know, three of us ate and there was like a thousand dollar bill and we had steak and wine and cocktails. And I mean, you can get everything now. Yeah. Kosher. So I think on the outpatient on level. Burger and right. yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So with, um, you know, fake lobster and whatnot. So I think it really only presents itself as a real challenge in treatment or something that needs to be addressed in treatment when we're talking about the higher levels of care. So as far as higher levels of care, let me sort of put it like this. If someone, let's say, had to be in the hospital for depression, not an eating disorder, I am sure that pretty much the majority of hospitals out there could provide some level of kosher food that get you those microwave meals that you get on the airplane and you know, you'd microwave it up, you'd have the same chicken and mashed potatoes and peas frozen every night <laughs> and you'd be fine throughout your stay there. The difference is when we're talking about an eating disorder, there's a lot more that goes into it. We need to know calorie counts. We need to know, you know, as far as the calorie counts of every single thing that goes into their mouth while they're in treatment. And also it's not good for your eating disorder to eat the same frozen chicken and mashed potatoes and peas. We need to be challenged. We need to have a variety of foods. So it gets a lot more complicated. It's not just, you know, this is 2023. Why can't we get kosher food everywhere? There's a lot more that goes into the meal planning, the meal preparation, and the meal variety for a patient that has an eating disorder. So the different programs out there really do try and accommodate as best as they can. And that's something that I think is just so wonderful in, in all the years that I've been here, and it'll be 16 in January. Wow. Um, I, I've really been amazed at how open and willing programs are to do whatever they can to help. You know, as long as it's clinically appropriate, and they have the resources for it, they really want to be as, as culturally supportive as they, as they can be. So each program is going to be a little bit different. So, you know, so what does that mean? Some programs are able to 
I've had anything from programs that say, well, we're just not going to, we're going to give you kosher style. Mm-hmm. You're going to have food with everyone else, but you're not going to have the pork. You're not going to have the meat and milk together. You're not going to have the shellfish. Like they just kind of do the bare bones minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to have kosher style. I've had some programs that said, okay, we're going to get in kosher meals for you, but there is going to be a limit to what we can do and how good that's going to be for your eating disorder. I mean, I know Columbia, you know, the New York State Psychiatric Institute, they had once, I once had a patient that was going there and they had said, you know, we can get you kosher meals. We'll get you the frozen kosher meals, but it's not good for your eating disorder. And we really don't recommend it. And that particular patient just did not eat kosher the entire time because mm-hmm. her illness was severe enough and serious enough that she, that she didn't. So anyway, so we've got some that do the kosher style with some that will get the microwave meals, but say that it's not good. Um, they really try not to allow vegetarian because again, if you're, if you're somewhere and you keep kosher, the next best level, which again, it's not great, would be to go vegetarian, but that's not good for the eating disorders. They try and avoid that. I've had some programs that allow families to supplement, to bring food. But that's also tricky because you need a dietitian in the program who's willing to work with you and find out, okay, what are you bringing? How many calories? What's that going to be? You know, again, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of background that has to happen. So there's kind of been a variety of options and each place is a little bit different, but they definitely do their best to accommodate. But, you know, sometimes one of the first things I have to teach parents, because they'll call me and they'll say, okay, my daughter, and thankfully not as much as it used to be, because people are much more aware, but they'll say, okay, my daughter needs a residential level of care. Which kosher programs do you have? And I'll say to them, no, 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 that's not how we do this question. You have, you know, you say my daughter needs a residential level of care, which is the best program out there for her illness. And now Mm -hmm. how do we get them to accommodate kosher or what are the kosher accommodations that they give that, you know, this is a life-threatening illness. So we have to look at which program is the best fit for her clinically. And then we see what's going on in each one. But, you know, unfortunately, without someone employed full-time, we talked about how the foods need to have that level of supervision all the way along the you know, the conveyor belt until it gets to us, right? There are no programs that have a full-time orthodox person supervising meal production. So even there are a couple of programs that say, well, we have a kosher kitchen even, you know, we've tried, we try to prepare everything separate. It's not going to be to the letter of the law, a thousand percent kosher. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to kind of see again, what are the clinical needs what are the accommodations available? And then a lot of times we have to bring in their rabbi just to discuss this with them to help them feel a bit more comfortable. So I always feel like I give very long answers to short questions, but that's that's kind of what we've seen. But they are very long answers to short questions. When you said that it's not good for their eating disorder, and this is something that maybe we understand implicitly, but can you expand a little bit on how tricky that can get with restriction based on religious observance and restriction that might be done to ease anxiety because this person has an eating disorder. And how do you tell the difference? So look, that's always, that's always a tricky thing, right? You know, when we are trying so hard to be culturally sensitive, you have to always remember, like, don't, don't lose your spidey sense. I call it, you know, like, you know, you still need to keep your clinical antenna on and and be looking at things with the, with the right glasses. So, you know, if someone is saying, well, I can't eat this and it's going to make no difference at all to their care or to their calorie count, you know, then we can listen. But if they're saying, you know, 
I can't have this. You know, like I've had people in programs that said, well, I can't have the dairy because I wait six hours after meat and you want to give me the dairy two hours. Well, you have a life-threatening illness. You're in a dangerous situation. I think that's your illness convincing you not to do this and, and not the reality. So what are some examples of, of religious things? I think, again, a lot of the waiting between the meat and the dairy. Most of the time, I feel like the parents are a little bit nervous because just like I told you how there's like this spectrum of Orthodox Jews, some people are much, much more careful with what they're going to eat. Like you have a variety of products in front of you. Some people will only eat products, let's say, that were produced by kosher, like a Jewish company, right? Like Lay's potato chips. It's not mm-hmm. a Jewish company, but they are kosher, right? So some people won't eat Lay's potato chips. They won't eat that OU supervision. They only want the Jewish supervision. So a lot of times I feel like the parents need to be explained that when they come in, you know, no, we're going to have to um, go to more basic levels. But I don't know in program specifically with kosher. I think it's more. I think the cultural things come up more, let's say, with Sabbaths. Um, well, I can't be weighed. Like, oh, you're not allowed to weigh me today um, mm-hmm. because it's a Sabbath. Or, you know, I feel like it's, it's you know, I've, I've had kids, I've had teenagers who told their parents, you know, they won't let me have a cup to wash my hands. You know, there's the ritual way we wash our hands in the morning. They won't let me have a mm-hmm. cup to wash my hands, which got the parents all nervous. Well, we're not giving you a cup because you purge in these things and you throw them out before we notice. So that's why we can't give you a cup. So I think I find it more with that, but kosher itself, like how they're in program trying to kind of, I don't know, what are some examples that you may have heard of? Well, something that is standing out to me is the the level that, I mean, we tend to decrease the level of um, observance just because it's not possible what you were saying. Right. And something that I've come in contact with is it's really, really tricky where one person is like, well, that's ridiculous. Let's say the waiting the six hours. Well, that's ridiculous. So maybe you can wait too. And for somebody else, it's not totally ridiculous. And we can swap out, you know, anything like to a certain extent, maybe not necessarily milk and meat, but you can swap that out for anything that maybe you would think is ridiculous or you would think is, is an like, no, I must do this. And somebody else who either isn't Orthodox or is just on a lo- much less, l- much lower level of observance will say, well, that's ridiculous because ultimately it's subjective. Right. So at what point does somebody else have a say of what needs to happen and how do you come to that medium? I mean, obviously there's no fine line right. here. The, the, so the example I'm thinking of really right now is not necessarily exactly kosher, but more, um, religious fasting. So specifically right. Yom Kippur, right. where there's like an intricate way of somebody not to fast. You can, you can talk a little right. more to this, right. but you know, the answer has been, you cannot fast. You have an eating right. disorder. And then that's where things get tricky, where somebody who's not Orthodox right. might be like, this is absolutely ridiculous. We're even having this conversation. So I think, look, I, I think as far, I don't think anyone should ever be saying something's ridiculous, right? I think if- Well, right, not in so many words. Right, right. You know what I'm <laughs> I think if something's important to a patient, we have to assess, well, where is that coming from, right? You know, where is that mm-hmm. coming from? Like, you know, the example that I give, you know, my husband was actually, um, he was sick about 10 years ago. He had cancer. Thankfully, he's doing well now. But he was not, he was on chemo and he was not allowed to fast on Yom Kippur. Okay. So mm-hmm. no eating disorder, nothing at all. Right. But he couldn't fast on Yom Kippur because he was, he was, um, you know, he was taking, you know, having chemo at the time. And 
it was the worst Yom Kippur of his entire life. So his rabbi said, of course, you've got to eat. The doctor said, of course, you've got to eat. Everybody said, you don't have to worry about it. You eat and don't worry about it. He was miserable, okay, because it's ingrained in our DNA how important Yom Kippur is and how meaningful and how spiritual and, and to not be able to fast was something very, very hard for him, even though logically everybody was fine. And again, you know, he had no body image issues, nothing like that. So I think, first of all, we mm -hmm. have to understand that there is going to be, you know, a, a, an emotional piece to not being able to do the things that we would like to do religiously. But then after that, so after we kind of validate that and understand that experience, right, then I think we have to look at, but is this, you know, but is this stopping you from doing, meaning at what point we have to kind of first validate the experience, but then we've got to sort of say, okay, but is the eating disorder enjoying this a little bit too, right? Mm -hmm. But is the eating disorder yeah. enjoying this a little bit too? Meaning if she's going to eat on Yom Kippur and all the rest, so we can validate how difficult that is for her. But if she's refusing to eat, I always say, you know, teenage girls get so religious on fast days when they have an eating disorder, right? <laughs> they get so religious when it comes to fast days when they have an eating disorder, eating disorder, enjoying this like a little bit, a little bit too much. So, um, and that's where you have to sort of see, you know, what's the next step? So is it just that it was hard and then they've stopped? And they're doing what they need to do, or is it it's hard and they're not doing what they need to do? So I think that's, you know, it's it's both validating that experience and then kind of teasing out, you know, how much is the eating disorder benefiting from that? And is that impacting this a little more? So I hope that answered a little bit your question. Yeah, for sure. And just to make it a little bit more messy is, you know, say maybe not necessarily someone with an eating disorder, but somebody who the rabbi, the doctor says you, you shouldn't fast and, and, but maybe you could do it in some sort of halfway where they eat like very right. tiny amounts of food right. very frequently. Right. That's what my husband has And to that do. also gets, yeah. So it's very, very tricky because it also really messes with relationship with food. Yeah. And, and so none of this is ever clear cut, even if there is a clear cut answer. I mean, it's just, it's messy all around. I think just to throw a wrench in it is we're talking about somebody who's in a higher level of care, very, seriously ill and no one can argue that maybe the person right. themselves will right but nobody else will right what about people who let's say you know i'm working with people who are outpatient mm. they're not medically compromised mm. and we have this conversation over and over and over again they are right in that they are not medically compromised they're not physically going to get ill from fasting right and they're not part of this category of, of somebody who is so seriously ill from right. their eating disorder in this one capacity, right. but they still have an eating disorder. And this is still a conversation, but the answer is then a lot more murky. Right. So look, definitely 100%. If someone is an inpatient level of care, then there's no fasting at all. And there's no, you know, what you were referencing is that it's called shiurim, right? Like these measures, what mm -hmm. someone is supposed, you know, when my husband had to eat, he wasn't just eating a, you know, burger and fries. He was allowed to eat a certain amount of food within a certain amount of time because we end up sort of assessing, well, what does it mean to eat, right? Eating means when you have a certain amount of food in a certain amount of time. So someone who's in an inpatient level of care, there's no, there should be nothing like that, nothing at all. They should just be eating whatever they're given. When they are in that outpatient level, you're right, it does get trickier. What I think is really, really important is to have a therapist you really trust and a rabbi who's really knowledgeable. I, I, you know, I mean, because mm -hmm. I've had some people who said this person should never fast for the rest of their life because it can do things, you know, fasting can do things to the brain. It can trigger things. You know, it's just not, 
you know, just psychologically, even if physically she'll be totally fine, psychologically, it's it's not going to be good for her. And then mm-hmm. I've had some people, again, who did allow those levels. So it is going to be very nuanced. I think that's why you have to have a therapist who really is very well trained in eating disorders and who you really trust and a rabbi who's really knowledgeable, who can hear you out, speak to the therapist and really figure out what's best for you because you will get that range. But of all the fast days, and I think there's, um, I don't have my cheat sheet in front of me, but I think there's six, right? Only two of them are really, really stringent, right? Only two of them are really, mm-hmm. really stringent of the fast throughout the year. It's just going to be that Yom Kippur, um, the Day of Atonement, which is, you know, September, October time, and um, the ninth of the month of, of, which is in the middle of the summer. Those are the only two that are really stringent. So the rest, like I would say automatically, again, even though I said I'm not a rabbi and I'm not God, mm-hmm. but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> You know, the other fast for sure should never even be a question. So it's really just those two a year that get that can get a little tricky. Yeah. Well, now that we're talking about rabbis, well, we've been talking about that the whole time. But now (laughs) about rabbis, I think it's important to talk about the role of a rabbi just for a little bit. And obviously, this is going to depend on someone's you know personal relationship with religion and their rabbi. This question comes mostly from somebody who might not have any relationship with a rabbi, might not be Orthodox, might not be Jewish, and they wouldn't necessarily understand why we'd want to ask a rabbi for an answer that's something that's related to mental health and medical, their medical, well, like their physical well-being. Um, And so where does the rabbi come in and and why do we need to run to ask the rabbi? (laughs) Right. So I think that's a great question. I think the rabbi is there not to answer the mental health part of the question, but to answer the Jewish law part of the question. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's really what the focus often is. Meaning if I'm taking care of my mental health and that is going to make me not be able to follow some aspect of Jewish law, I'm going to want to reach out to my rabbi to ask them to speak to them about it to either make sure it's okay, right? If I'm trying to be observant, to make sure it's okay, or to help me feel better about not being able to do that, right? You know, if, if again, back to the example, if you can't fast, so then your rabbi can be reassuring to you and yet let you know, you know, it's okay. This is what your job is right now. This is how you follow, you know, the law by eating when, you know, normally we would say not to eat. So the rabbi's role is really to help you with where your mental health treatment intersects with being able to observe Jewish law. I think that's really what we would be looking at there more. Yeah, I think it's it's important to highlight this because I this is also one part of our culture that might seem a little, not necessarily crazy, but a little less independent than people typically are in making these really difficult decisions sometimes. And I think it's not so much so that people are running to a rabbi to make a decision for them. It's the same way where you go to a doctor and you ask what their medical opinion is. And obviously you can do whatever you want with it, but it's more so, okay, give me this religious observance or or law Mm -hmm. perspective and then incorporate it into what the rest of the team is saying and what makes the most sense. Right. But I think by the same token, and I'm just going to, now I'm going to throw a monkey wrench at what you're saying. You know, just like I said, there's all varieties of Orthodox Jews. There are varieties of rabbis. Yes. And we really hope that they are as knowledgeable as possible in mental health issues, as well as in Jewish law, you know, and really are there guiding them appropriately. But by the same token, don't just assume because someone says they're a rabbi that 
you know, we need to do everything that 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 they're saying and, you know, that their that their word is law. Again, you keep your spidey sense as a clinician. Mm -hmm. Now I'm speaking more to the clinicians. And if something's just not feeling right and you really feel that this is, you know, what's being said is impactful, then we need to navigate that because, you know, in Jewish law, saving a life is primary importance, you know, right? You know, I'm Sabbath observant. Mm -hmm. I don't go in a car. I don't use electricity on Shabbos, but I've been in a car on Shabbos when my son had croup and we had to go to the doctor. I still remember my husband walked to the doctor first to the pediatrician and he said, you've got to bring him to me. Get yourself, there, there was someone in the neighborhood, a non-Jewish person who offered you know, his services to help people if they needed something on the Shabbos. You get in that car and you bring him over to me. And I made my husband even go back. I'm like, but the baby's smiling. He's smiling. Like, is it really so serious? <laughs> and my husband came back and said, the doctor said, even happy babies get sick. Get him in the car and bring him over. And that was an Orthodox doctor, you know, an Orthodox Jewish doctor. Mm -hmm. So really, you know, saving a life is primary importance. So if there's something that you as a therapist, you know, really feels like they spoke to their rabbi, but I really, I'm not happy with this. Then we might need to investigate a little bit more. Either the rabbi is not familiar enough or just, just double check. Just because someone says, I know it sounds so bad to say, just because someone says they're a rabbi, they might not be, but just, you know, just double check if there's something that's just really smelling not right, you know, that's, that's all. Yeah. And I think also what you're referring to is that every person is, is different besides for their religious level of observance, but in terms of their personality, what's good for their recovery and their treatment. So right. this is, a, you know, somebody looking at their own life or their own client's life. This is something that's going to be with all this information. It has to be individualized. Right. A hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. So with all this, obviously there's lots of branches off of this, but is there any other, are there any other considerations that you think is important that we haven't talked about? Important um, for whom? You know, because I feel like there's lots mm. of important stuff. So important more for whom? Well, I guess specifically, if maybe this doesn't apply to everybody, but a clinician who's working with somebody who is Orthodox Jewish. So I really feel like my big thing is, I think, like I said, it's 2023. Everybody's culturally sensitive, right? We're all culturally sensitive. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, we're eating, breathing and sleeping that. I think my big thing is don't be afraid. Like that's, that's really what I try and tell mm -hmm. them. Like, don't be afraid. No one expects you to know everything. I don't know everything. And I'm, you know, and I'm an old lady here. So about Orthodox Judaism. So, so no one expects you to know everything. I just don't want you to be scared to ask. Don't be afraid. If something's, yeah. if you want to understand more about something, if you think it's important to your patient, don't be afraid to ask. You're not going to insult us. You're not going to offend us. And it's important. So I think don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to question. And like I said, don't lose your spidey sense. You know, if it smells like a duck and it looks like a duck, it's a duck. So don't feel like you have to. I have seen clinicians who kind of twist themselves into a pretzel a little bit to be culturally sensitive. But ultimately, you know, like I there was there was someone in program once I remember years ago and I actually went to go visit that facility. I had the opportunity to visit the facility and the parents had given me permission to talk to the facility about their daughter. So I was talking to them and I'm like, and she really wasn't doing well. So it was like a young adult. And she was struggling in treatment. And I said, like, you know, OK, well, what, what can we do? Like, is there anything we're missing? Like, tell me anything, anything I can explain more to the parents. And they said, well, it would be good if they came to visit more often. But we can't ask them to do that. They've got such a big family. I said, no, 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 no. You ask them to do anything that you feel is necessary for that child. It's then their job to figure out how to make it happen. Like they were trying so hard to be culturally sensitive because, they, you know, this is a family of 10 kids or something. But ultimately, that's not their role. Their role is to give the best clinical recommendation 
and to explain it as well as they can to the family. And then the family has to do what they need to do. And I really, really have, I will say, I've had families who have just really risen above and beyond and, and, and been so resourceful. Um, I, I have, you know, families with, you know, big families, double digit kids doing FBT, visiting kids in programs, going around, doing whatever they need to do. So they really, there are a lot of, there's a lot of support in the community. There are a lot of resources out there. You know, I think we are resilient people and, and we really do care um, about our families and about our emotional well-being. So, you know, that that's the thing. Don't overcompensate by trying to be culturally sensitive, you know, and, and that I think, and don't be afraid. I think those would be my big messages. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I think that this has been really helpful and mostly besides for giving information that's important, really trying to take the information and then be able to apply it. So this has been really helpful. Thank you. Pleasure. Before I let you go, where can our listeners find you? Okay. So they can find me on the World Wide Web. Relief has a website. It's reliefhelp.org. So it's R-E-L-I-E-F as in Frank, H-E-L-P as in Paul.org. And you can- It's like you said that once before. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so um, it's got our website, has all our information. And it also has uh, my contact information there. The main relief phone number, if they need that, is listed there as well. But it's 718-431-9501. And definitely happy to help if there's something that we could do, 100%. Yes. Well, thank you again. Pleasure. Take care. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait to see you in your inbox.